0: overloaded how many of us are feeling that during this pandemic my next guest Ginny Smith science writer and presenter explains what is going on in our brains with some useful tips in her latest book Ginny whose passions are neuroscience and psychology loves to tell stories she blogs and presents podcasts with well-known scientists to explain science her latest is brain-tastic for kids. Let's find out more. Welcome Jenny, to Tea Time with me, Ali Monjack. So how are you in sunny Singapore?
1: I'm well, thanks. Yeah, we're, um, we're very, feel very lucky to be here that everything COVID wise has been really well controlled and life is fairly, I mean, we've got a lot of travel restrictions, but otherwise life is fairly normal here, which is very strange looking at the rest of the world. Yes,
0: absolutely. It it is very strange from what you've described as well. I mean, it's almost unbelievable looking from where we are in the UK. Um, So you've been quite busy, haven't you? And you have just written a book, which is going to be released this week. Yes, very exciting. I'm, I'm going to say funnily... Because funnily enough, it's called Overloaded, and goodness knows how many people must be feeling <laughs> overloaded during <laughs> this pandemic. So yeah. was it written with that in mind? When did you start writing the book?
1: No, I started well before the pandemic. I've, it's, been, it's been probably over two years since I started writing it. Um, So it's been quite a long project, but I did, I was still writing it when the pandemic hit. So there are a few chapters where I kind of picked up on things that people might be experiencing in the pandemic. Um, The title came partly from, I wanted that kind of, that feeling that, um, well, when it comes to brain chemicals, there is so much going on all the time. Our brain is swimming in these chemicals and that there it can feel quite overloading. And I know I felt a bit overloaded when I was writing it, that it is just so complex. But also that actually that's what we're aiming to avoid is overloading the brain with any one chemical at any one time. And it's actually all about balance. So it was that kind of idea of, of the overload of chemicals, but also the overload of information and complexity that I was experiencing when trying to research and write the book.
0: I can imagine because it, it's, you know, with that sort of level of stress of trying to get things across, so it's easily accessible to everybody. It, it must be quite stressful in a way, must not it, really?
1: Yeah, I mean, I love talking about the brain. It's my favourite thing to do, but I, I, I know how complicated the brain is. I've been talking about it, writing about it for kids and adults for sort of 10 years, but... When I started this project, I think I slightly underestimated that extra layer of complexity that comes when you look at the brain chemicals and just how much there is we still don't know about the brain when you get right down to that molecular level. And then even more so kind of joining up what's going on at the molecular level with how that affects our behavior. And and neuroscience is quite a young science. It's Mm. compared to physics and things we've not been doing it for that long and there is so much that we still don't know so one of the things that I found really interesting when writing the book was that I kept running into the edges of scientific knowledge I would be talking to a scientist and I'd ask them a question that had come up in my reading and they'd go that's a great question. Yeah, we don't know that yet. Um, And that kept happening, which which is fascinating. But yes, did make it slightly challenging in writing the book. But one of the things that I like to do is, is tell people when that's the case, like I don't have all the answers, scientists don't have all the answers, we have some answers, and they're very interesting, but there's still huge amounts that we're working out.
0: Well, I mean, you know, from my understanding of it, I mean, a mine is basic understanding. <laughs> you know, you have all these brain chemicals. Um, you know, serotonin, dopamine, um, and it is, it's cortisol, isn't it? As well, cortisol
1: is a stress chemical that um, you get all throughout the body. So, in the, uh, I think it goes into the brain. Yeah, it goes into the brain as well, but in your body as well. Um, so that's yeah, that's another layer of complexity. Some of these chemicals. Uh, have one effect in the brain and another effect in the body or they're found in both or they have slightly different effects in each um, but yes sorry carry on well I'm just trying to sort of you know because the listeners
0: are not going to be particularly scientific hmm. but it, it it does sort of relate to how you react to something as a person when you're under that flight or um, fight mode for example doesn't it
1: Yeah, so the stress chemicals are something that we all will have experienced and they have evolved to protect us. So if we see something that might be a threat, our brains initiate this whole response that involves our nervous system, but also the release of chemicals, one of which is cortisol, another one is adrenaline. Um, And they basically produce all these changes in your body that get you ready to deal with whatever that threat is. Now, the problem comes because our brain evolved when threats would be things like a bear um, jumping out of bushes in front of you. And that is something that is a short lived threat. So you either run away from it and survive or you get eaten. Um, Those are the only two options, basically, when it comes to a bear. The things that cause stress responses now in the modern day are often long term things. So the pandemic is a perfect example. There is no benefit to you in having an increased heart rate when there's a pandemic. That doesn't, running away from the virus is not going to do anything, but your brain doesn't know that. So it's still initiating the stress response, which has evolved to help you run, fight or freeze um, and therefore avoid something. But the threats we're dealing with are very different. And that means the responses can be prolonged. And actually, if these chemicals, the stress ones in particular, are released over a long period of time, they can start having negative impacts on your health.
0: Yes. And I suppose, you know, during this pandemic, uh, there there has been a lot of that for lots of different reasons. Obviously, as you described, you know, worrying about the actual catching of the virus. But, you know, also the other implications that have happened between then that now and then because of isolation or people losing jobs or losing things, you know, they're has been a whole landslide hasn't there for everybody across the world so it, it it's in other words i mean how people get to to grips with that as well
1: well one good thing is we do sort of tend to get used to things as we experience them. So most people will probably be experiencing, and obviously there will be exceptions. And particularly if something has happened during that time, the death of a loved one or a loss of a job or something like that. Um, But most people will probably be feeling less acutely stressed now than they were at the beginning of the pandemic uh, Mm. because we do sort of get used to the way we're living. And I know, I mean, it's partly because things are, kind of fine here now but at the beginning um, of the pandemic we just moved to Singapore and we were actually trying to move into our flat and things were closing around us and there was a period where I thought we might not have a sofa um, for lock and be in lockdown without a sofa or a telly with just a mattress on the floor Um, and I actually a few months later my hair started falling out and that's a physiological response to the stress chemicals one of the things they can do is they tip you out of the kind of stage where your body is growing and maintaining itself and one of the things that can happen is uh, some of your hair follicles go into shutdown mode to kind of protect energy Um, and then a few months later they start falling out and that was something that I know quite a lot of people experienced um, a few months into the pandemic as well but a lot of the times these stress responses do start to reduce if you live at that level for for a long time as we're having to um the other thing is I guess people learn to deal with it and there are ways that you can learn to shut off or at least kind of damp down your stress response so um I started meditating more regularly some people find that really helpful deep yeah. breathing um those kinds of things other people find exercise um There are lots of ways that you can. Obviously with isolation, one of the best ways to deal with stress is to be with other people. We're a a social species and actually a hug from a loved one is one of the best ways to shut off your stress response, Um, which is fine if you're living with someone, if you're in isolation on your own. I know people who found that really difficult, not having that physical touch because that's something we're evolved to want to need.
0: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, I, I live with my daughter and that, that has been, you know, lovely to have those cuddles every day. You know, it's, mm. it is it's it is strange though, isn't it? I mean, you know, as a neuroscientist and you've been studying this really because it's ongoing, isn't it? You're, you're always constantly learning. Mm. Um, That you are very sort of in touch with the idea of meditation and holistic treatments um which is kind of important don't you think in this sort of think-
1: Yeah I yeah I think um you have to be really careful with the things that go under the umbrella of holistic or hmm. wellness or those sorts of things because there are some things in there that there is absolutely no evidence for and there are other things that can actually cause harm. Meditation is a really interesting one because there is actually quite a significant and growing body of research um, looking into particularly mindfulness meditation that is finding in some people, not everyone, there are real positive benefits to it um, in terms of reducing the stress response and kind of calming reactivity because one of the things that we think happens in the brain is there's basically always a bit of a a fight between your kind of reactive emotional responses and Mm -hmm. the prefrontal areas of the brain which are behind your forehead which are the kind of more rational logical ones Um, so have you ever had that experience where you see like um, a bit of cotton or something on the table and you think it's a spider or you see a, a, a coiled hose and you think it's a snake and then you realize almost instantly that it's not yes yeah yeah so what that is is your amygdala flagging something that might be a danger and then your prefrontal cortex going no don't worry calm down it's not it's just a bit of cotton yes. um, and that is kind of always going on and one of the things that we think meditation can do is it can help you kind of disconnect from uh, the those emotional responses as they come up and control them better, kind of damp them down better. And that can be really helpful uh, I, for some people.
0: Yeah, no, I do see that. I mean, I actually, to be honest, I'm, I meditate myself as well every day because, you know, for that very reason, you know, working in media... I think you know is is it can be quite quite a stressful experience at times so it it is it's just as i see it as sort of clearing my mind really so mm. in order for me to be able to focus properly so you know Liz, it's interesting because you know listening to it from somebody like yourself who's written a book about it as well um it, it kind of makes sort of logical sense doesn't it it really does I mean, the other thing that, you know, in your book, Overloaded, that you've been writing about is hormones. Now, for us ladies, goodness knows what what we have to go through there.
1: Yeah, so I actually don't go into the sort of reproductive cycle a huge Hmm. amount in the book. Um, And that's partly because there often isn't that much work connecting that up with, neuroscience Um, and one of the big problems in neuroscience is that and actually in in basically most research done on humans certainly behavioral research psychology neuroscience that kind of thing is it's almost always done on undergrads at universities and often it's done on male undergrads not Mm. always um, Mm -hmm. but often and it's partly because they're the easiest sample to get like if you're a researcher working at a university you can offer five pounds an hour and you'll get a bunch of very willing undergrads coming and helping you out or in America I think they do it for course credit um, sometimes to help in psychology experiments but it does mean that it can be quite hard to generalize experiments so we know that something is the case in this group that was experimented on but if they're all 19 year old boys Mm, does that tell us a lot about the rest of society um so that is is quite an issue and sometimes Um, people who have oestrus cycles are ruled out of experiments because it might complicate things. So I know that's often the case in um, medical trials, and actually people are starting to realise that it might be quite a good idea to test, you know, half of the population go through these fluctuations in hormones, um, and maybe we should check if that has an impact on medication. Um, But it's sometimes not done. So yeah so in c- terms of how the oestrus cycle affects neurochemistry i did decide not to go into that just because i cover nine topics in the book kind of each one is a chapter from learning and memory to sleep if i tried to include that in each chapter i just would never have finished writing the book um, but yeah it's it's really really interesting and it's it's something that actually i've been asked a few times things around how the menopause affects these different things and that kind of thing and when I've gone away and looked at it I've I've sometimes struggled to find the research so um, uh, yeah it's an area that I think is very interesting and perhaps needs to be explored a bit more
0: I I can see I think I think there's another book in there Ginny
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah there definitely no there definitely could be I I do touch on some hormones in the book um, but generally the brain is complicated enough without bringing too much of the body into it as well yes. so most of the time I stay above the neck but there are a few hormones that I touch on particularly in the um, eating chapter because obviously there's a lot of communication between the gut and the brain um, in food and hunger and that kind of thing but yes a lot of the time I stay stay above the neck. Well that, I mean that
0: that that is good though I mean it, it does look like a, an amazing book and as you said, it, it, it's taken you, it's been a couple of years in the pipeline to, to make. I mean, what actually inspired you to, to, to go and study neuroscience?
1: So I didn't actually discover neuroscience until I was at university. I went to university to study chemistry, um, but the course that I did at Cambridge, you do four subjects in your first year. And I was kind of, I was a bit, couldn't really decide what to do as my fourth one. And I picked a course called Evolution and Behavior kind of on a whim. Um, And then we had, it was mostly animal behavior, but we had one set of lectures on human behavior. And I just went, ooh this is interesting. Um, I've always been the kind of person who wants to find out how things work and just the idea that there might actually be an area where you could find out how humans worked just really appealed to me. So I switched direction in my second year and went to um, study neuroscience and psychology and kind of put the chemistry stuff on hold. Although it turns out chemistry is involved in neuroscience as well. so, yeah, it was that it was a bit of a sort of happy accident that took me in that direction. And then I just I just found it fascinating that we might be able to actually explain what to me feel like the biggest questions in science. Like, what is consciousness? How why do we behave the way we do? Why are people different to each other? Why do why do all the why do we experience things the way we do that? We might be able to actually do real science and find answers to those. I thought, yeah, it just really excited me. So I haven't. And I mean, it's
0: grown and yeah, absolutely. And it, it's grown and grown for you. I mean, you, you know, you're part of the British Psychological Society, aren't you? Yes. Um, so I'm
1: one of the presenters for their podcast, Psych Crunch.
0: Yeah. So I mean, and that that must be. I mean, I've I've looked at it. I, I have to confess, I haven't actually listened to a podcast yet but I will be definitely because you know I I do find it you know I think all of us during this pandemic have started to look at you know us as people and started Mm. to think about you know how we do function because you know there's been so much stress and anxiety hasn't there really
1: Definitely. And one of the things that I love about what I do is getting to talk to interesting people. And as you say, I'm always learning new things. But I also um, spend quite a lot of time talking to young people about their brains. Um, Mm -hmm. So a bit less at the moment. But pre pandemic, I did a lot of going into schools um, and doing shows and workshops and things and going to science festivals. And Again, I think it's something that the more young people understand about their brains as they're growing up, how they're changing, um, how to get the best out of them through learning things for exams, understanding stress and anxiety. I think even if you don't want to be a neuroscientist, everyone can benefit from knowing a bit more about their brains. So, yeah, I'm really passionate about helping young people and adults understand what's going on in there.
0: Well, I think also, you know, there, there is something in there. I mean, you know, during this whole pandemic as well, people have gone a little bit of learning crazy, perhaps, mm. you know, over the top in some ways, because, you know, we, we kind of thought, didn't we, as soon as lockdown happened, we'd have a lot more time on our hands. And in reality, is that the truth? I'm not so sure. But, but However I mean you know for an adult brain how important is it do you feel you know knowing what you know
1: for them to be learning things all the time? It's super important so one of the best things you can do for your brain to keep it healthy throughout your life is to keep challenging it to keep learning new things and that can be as simple as going to a different place or taking a different route on your walk, anything that's giving your brain different input is going to be changing the connections within your brain and and sort of keeping them going. Because the thing that our brain does is it wants to be efficient. So if it's using connections, they get stronger. And if it's not using them, they get weaker and eventually get pruned away. So what you want to do as you're getting older is to create as dense a network as you can so keep as many different sets of uh, neurons connected as you can you can think of it a bit like a road network Mm. so it might be really really efficient to just have one big motorway but can you imagine if something happened to that road and that was the only route you had to get? from A to B. So if, um, I don't know, a bridge fell down, there'd be no other options. Whereas if you had that motorway, but you also had a load of little A roads going around it, if something happened to that motorway, you can still get from A to B. So as we get older, there's more likely to be problems in the brain that might be a stroke, it might be the beginning of Alzheimer's disease, and what they can do is they can damage some of these connections. But if you've got lots and lots of connections to start with, damage to a few of them doesn't have as big an effect on your life because you can take those other roads. So the more, the denser the network you can build up, and, and this starts... Right from childhood. So we've got um, quite good evidence that the higher your level of education, the less likely you are to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or the later you're likely to be diagnosed with it. And we mm-hmm. think that's because the more education you've got, the denser a network you've got to start with. But that's something you can keep building throughout your life by trying new things learn a new musical instrument, go to a new place, speak a foreign language, anything that, that keeps you learning and keeps those connections building and developing. I mean
0: that is interesting. I well, mean not obviously, you know, older adults obviously have not probably had the, the opportunity for education as of course, but
1: it doesn't have um, to be
0: formal education. So it, it, it is just about keeping that that
1: brain ticking over no
0: matter no Yeah matter and social
1: I... Um, Social interaction does it as well. So again, difficult at the moment. I don't know if we've got any evidence for whether Zoom calls do the same thing. I imagine they have a similar effect (laughs) and be something to study in the future. But um, people who have strong social networks are also protected against dementia in later life. So even just socializing is enough to keep your brain going, keep it active.
0: No, I I completely understand what you mean. I mean, for me, my my whole sort of lockdown experience from September, when I actually came out of a TV studio, has been all over Zoom. And, you know, I I feel incredibly grateful. I really do, because I've met some amazing people like yourself and learned about many different things. So...
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, can you imagine what this pandemic would have been like without the technology we have now? Just it would have been awful. so lucky to have Zoom and to have Netflix and to have all this stuff on demand. Um, yeah. and,
0: and stuff where we have easy access to. I mean, you know, the Internet is one big learning tool, isn't it? Really? So, yeah, yeah definitely. We are incredibly lucky in that that way. I think so. So is this your first book?
1: This is my first solo book. So I've worked on a few um, sort of illustrated books by DK Publishing, who used to be Dolan Kindersley when I was a kid that do yes. the very yes. illustrated ones where we have a team of writers and illustrators um, and editors all kind of working together. But this is my first one that will that is all mine and has my name on the front. So that's quite, yeah, it's very exciting. Um, So that that is fantastic. And,
0: you know, I mean, you're... A part of many science networks. Anyway, mm. I'm you're part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Yeah. Um, so- and
1: I've also started um, Brain Tastic this year, which is all about helping young people, kids um, and teenagers, understand their brains. Um, so we do the kind of school shows things that I was talking about earlier. We've also got a science club all about the senses, which is all online. Um so yeah, so I do cosmic shambles, I've got brain tastic, BPS, um, yeah, lots of hats.
0: <laughs> you have got lots of hats. And of course, you know, as you said, it, it's really easily accessible now because you just go online and you can digest, basically, mm-hmm. can't you? Which is brilliant. Um, and you've also, you know, worked with lots of different people, haven't you? Like alongside Brian Cox, which um yeah, is is a very well known scientist in his own right, isn't
1: he? <laughs> yes, yeah. So he does um, various things with the Cosmic Shambles Network as well. I've worked with Robin Ince a lot, who um, is a partner with Brian in Monkey Cage and those kinds of things. There's, yeah, I've met some very cool people through um, Cosmic Shambles, various astronauts. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so cool. Yes. Yes. yes, yes. astronauts.
0: So. Yeah, I, I recently had um, on the show uh, an awards-winning director, Dwight Stephen Bonickey, who um, actually did a documentary on Skylab, which is the first international space station.
1: Cool.
0: That NASA produced in
1: 1973, 1974, so yeah um You're interested, you might be interested um co- with cosmic shambles pre-lockdown and everything we got the chance to go and see some of the experiments that were getting done on what's known as the vomit comet which is the plane that does zero g um so that you get like eight seconds where you're floating like you're in space so before things go up to the space station they often test them in this it's just a regular plane that's been like all decked out and then they fly in these amazing parabolas that mean that effectively the plane is falling so everyone on it experiences zero g for a few seconds I didn't get to go on it I stayed on the ground and did the interviews there but Helen Chersky who I was working with went up in the plane and got to play around whilst floating Um, but it was really interesting talking to scientists about what kind of experiments they're doing in zero g and some of it was physics but there were some psychology experiments as well how do people how does people's perception change in zero g can they tell still feel where their hands are and those kinds of things if there's no gravity Um, so yeah that was really fascinating as well I can imagine and by the name of it the vomit what did you call it? Vomit comet is what it's often (laughs) called um yes some people can experience quite significant motion sickness Mm. um they do have a drug for it which works really well so I think there was only one person on Helen's flight who felt a bit dodgy um but it does very much because the there are no Uh, windows or anything in most of the plane so you can't see outside and then the plane is flying in such weird ways that um, motion sickness happens when basically when your eyes and your ears don't match so your ears detect how you're moving and if your what you're seeing doesn't match how you're moving your brain thinks you might have been poisoned um so it decides to Make you sick in order to get rid of whatever this poison is that's doing this weird thing to you. It's another example of your brain not quite understanding the modern world, and thinking, "Oh, if that's happening, I must be poisoned." Um, So that's why we get motion sickness. So obviously, if you put someone in a plane and then fly it in parabolas ten times in five minutes a lot of the time that's going to make them sick Um, but there are drugs that can help which is good
0: (laughs) yes no I I can well imagine I mean I I do suffer from travel sickness as well so I don't think the vomit comet would be for me actually probably (laughs) not
1: for you (laughs) luckily Helen's very hardy she spent a lot of time on boats and diving and things and she doesn't get sick so she was very confident and she didn't
0: do you know what is so lovely as well though is to see somebody that is really happy in what they do and and making a difference to people's lives as well by doing the the kind of research that you're doing and you know helping children as well and adults I think that's absolutely brilliant and I'm sure that I will be reading your book by the end of the week to to find out (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, definitely. Because, you know, as I said, it, it, it's really interesting how our brain does work. And, you know, I mean, we've all experienced some sort of stress and anxiety this year. I mean, you know,
1: yeah.
0: Um, so it, it, it will be interesting to. So, I mean, mm. obviously you, you give sort of like small anecdotes to, to try and get better sleep and things like that.
1: Yeah, so um, the way the book works is each chapter is on a different topic. And I go into the chemicals involved in that topic, some of the behavioural research, and I try and sort of pull out what we might be able to learn in each topic, how to learn and remember things better, um, you know, what, what, what we can actually learn from the research. And yes, sleep is one that I always find whenever I do talks, people have loads of questions about sleep. Mm. It's fascinating. Um, And again, there's a huge amount we still don't understand. Scientists still don't know why we sleep. Um, But we are starting to understand the kind of networks that transition us from wake to sleep and the chemicals that are involved in that. Um, And yeah, what I kind of took away from the sleep chapter was that actually... There are drugs that can help, but mostly they're only recommended for short term because we don't know how they would impact. They often change the architecture of the sleep. So when we sleep, we go through different phases. And if you're taking a drug, it might sort of knock you out, but you might only get you might get more of one phase and less of another. And actually, we don't know what that does in the long term. So um, prescription and over-the-counter sleep aids are normally only recommended as a short-term solution and what's recommended long-term is behavioural change and actually it's quite amazing that the way we change our behaviour can actually have knock-on impact on our brain chemistry and that can then affect our behaviour so you get like this, this kind of little cycle Um, so things like, um, trying to help set your body clock by getting bright light in the morning and then avoiding it in the evening can change the release of a chemical called melatonin, which helps tell your brain when it's time to sleep.
0: Right. But, you know, I mean, we, we do need sleep, don't we? Oh,
1: Uh, definitely. Yes. Um, there is very, very good evidence that you can go without food for longer than you can go without sleep. Um, you can you can die of lack of sleep Um, but but we don't know why we don't know what it actually is about lack of sleep that kills you which which is kind of amazing but you can kind of see why because it's really hard to do experiments on that Um, Mm. you can't ethically keep people awake until they die and then see What's happened? Because no. <laughs> that wouldn't be ethical. Um, and this is actually one of the big problems in neuroscience and psychology that often you can't do the experiment that might give you an answer because it would hurt people, and and you can't do that, or because you need to know what's going on over a really long period of time. Um, and that you can't follow people for, well, you can follow people for 70 years, but you can't get them to do something every day for 70 years and see what happens. So that's one of the, the, kind of limitations that we have in psychology and neuroscience. And it means we have to look at what's happening in cells, in Petri dishes or in, uh, mice or rats perhaps, and then try and translate that into humans. Cause we can't do the experiments actually in humans.
0: No, I understand. It, it would be, as you said, ethically, not. not
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> no, have, no. Um, people, yes, yeah, so that
0: that, that would, could be catastrophic mm. as
1: well. There have been, so, so the, one of the ways we get around it is we study people who we call natural experiments um, or who've decided to do those things for themselves. So there have been a couple of people who have attempted to break world records for staying awake. And I think... Mm it's now not included in any record books because we know that it's dangerous to do. Um, But there are a couple of people who did it and stayed awake for five or six days and started hallucinating and all these weird things happened to them. Um, So we can look at at that kind of thing to try and kind of understand it a bit better. And obviously people who experience insomnia, we can follow them and see how they, what happens to them down the line compared to people who don't, but it's hard to do direct experiments.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can remember, I think it's probably 10 years ago by now, that um, Chris Moyles, the old BBC One radio mm-hmm. DJ, did a, the longest DJ. I mean, they stayed up for, oh, I can't remember now, was it 78 hours or something? Oh, wow. Yeah, 76 hours. We,
1: um, at Cosmic Shambles, we did a, it was going to be 24 hours, and then it ran over. So it was like 27 hours or something like that. Um, live show and most of us just dialed in or did one set or whatever but uh, Robin and a couple of others stayed awake for the whole time and I tried to do a psychology experiment on him Um, so I don't know if you remember the game Bop It it's like a little handheld thing with like various bits that you have to flick or spin or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, so I got him to do Bop It every few hours throughout the 24 hour period Um, And the aim was to see if he got better or worse at it. Um, And I was predicting that he'd get worse as he got more tired. He got so annoyed with it that at about 3am he threw it at a chair and broke it. Um, <laughs> and then we had to bring out another boppet, which was a different version because we'd had to buy them on eBay because they don't sell them anymore. Um, so the new one only had three options rather than the five that he'd been doing before. So then he got a lot better at it. So it didn't really prove anything in terms of his boppet ability, but he was definitely more angry at it at 3 a.m. than he had been at 7 p.m. So an emotional control is one of the things that we know sleep really affects so if you've not had enough sleep you might get tearful or you might get irritable um, and that's because the executive functions a bit behind your forehead kind of shut down first so they're not controlling your amygdala quite as much and you become more reactive um, if you're tired more emotionally reactive so I think we 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 maybe got some suggestions that he was experiencing that even if we didn't see his cognitive ability at a bop change yeah. because of technical <laughs> issues oh
0: blast no so I mean that kind of relates to what you would maybe term as brain fog
1: yeah I think maybe a little bit um executive functions is is the kind of the bit where you're planning um you're kind of decision-making all of that is and I think everyone's experienced if they're very tired that those are the things that feel like such a big deal like you just can't I can't I can't decide what to have for dinner or even silly little things like that if you've missed a night's sleep Um, so yeah it does seem like well basically if the brain is running low on energy it's going to keep the most important functions running so The most important function is keeping you breathing and keeping your heart rate going so that's that's definitely going to stick around the next most important is threat detection it's you know is there a bear do i need to run away from it that is really important so even if you're tired your emotional systems are still switched on the kind of forward thinking forward planning rational bits are in evolutionary terms a bit less important Um, so if you're going to power down one bit of the brain that will be the bit to go Um, and we know those connections between the frontal cortex and the emotional areas of the brain do deteriorate if we've not had enough sleep and that is also a risk factor for anxiety and depression so there are really strong links between sleep problems and anxiety and depression and unfortunately they go both ways so if you're not sleeping well you're more at risk of anxiety and depression of course if you're anxious or depressed that can lead to not sleeping well so you can end up in this this nasty sort of vicious cycle right um, that it's hard to break out of
0: yeah I mean it has been said I know that you know I I know a little bit about mental health and I really I couldn't claim to be an expert in any way shape or form but um It can also go the opposite way though, can't it? With anxiety and depression, you can end up sleeping.
1: Yes, and again, this is is one of the really interesting things that in my mood chapter, I talk a bit about anxiety and depression and the number of different theories for chemically and physically what's going on um, are huge. Um, and I cover sort of three of them. One of them is this imbalance between the frontal lobe and the um, amygdala. Um, but, there, but there are lots of others. And it may be that actually in different people, you're getting different causes for depression. Um, so, for example, there seem to be a subgroup of people with depression who have high levels of inflammation in the body. And actually in them... Um, traditional antidepressants often don't work. But if you can reduce the inflammation, that has a bigger effect. So I think with the treatment of mental um, health conditions, we need to stop sort of grouping everyone into one category and start looking at more personalized approaches. And one of my hopes for the future is that we might be able to develop some kind of tests that will tell us which drugs might work best for which subgroups? Um, so I spoke to a really interesting researcher called Catherine Harmer um, for the book who's looking at the way people process positive and negative information. So most of us, if we're shown a happy face and a sad face, we'll spend more time looking at the happy face. But -hmm. people with depression will spend more time looking at the sad face. Um, And they'll also remember negative information better, whereas most of us remember positive information better. But she found that um, if you treat people with SSRIs, and normally um, we know that only about a third of people, sorry, break that down SSRI yes yes I was just going back on that so um, (laughs) SSRIs are the most common form of antidepressant it stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor Um, but it's the most common drug used so if you are suffering depression you go to the doctor the first drug they will try you on will probably be an SSRI but only about a third of people will respond to the first SSRI they take And it takes six weeks before you see a response. So you'll feel just as bad or sometimes even worse for six weeks before you start feeling better. And if you don't feel better after six weeks, they try you on a different one and then wait another six weeks. And then they maybe try you on a different one. So it can take a really long time to find a drug that works for that individual person. And what Catherine's research has found is that after one dose of the drug, she can see a change in how people with depression are taking in information. So in the people who are going to respond to that drug, for whom it, people it will help them, they start looking at the happy face straight away. They don't feel any better, but mm. she can see it in her tests that they're looking at that happy face. So she, this test could tell us straight away whether someone will respond to that SSRI so if they're not responding you can try them on a different one after a week rather than after six weeks which would make a huge difference so I'm really hopeful for the future that these kind of personalized approaches not just going this is a drug that normally works for your condition but this is a drug that might work for you and let's see can we test whether it will work for you rather than it being trial and error
0: yeah Definitely. That, that sounds really good because I think, you know, I mean, I not that I have the knowledge that you have, but, you know, being a journalist and having read lots of different things, articles to do with mental health or done interviews on mental health, um, it does strike me that there has been a reoccurring theme with, you know, doctors and um, other people, you know, to do with different treatments that they just tend to stick to the same thing for a certain band of people and you know it's surely i mean i can just see that as a you know a, a person looking from the outside in it, it it's got to be a different um yeah
1: it's just it's re- i don't think it's of the fault of the sorry um oh, yeah
0: think it, it's got to be a different treatment strategy for every individual because...
1: Yeah, um, I think the problem is at the moment that doctors... I mean, some of the case, the tests don't exist yet. So the best thing we can do is trial and error. And mm-hmm. generally doctors will start with the drug that has the least chance of side effects. And then if that doesn't work, they go on to one that may have worse side effects and then so on. Um, but yeah, I do think that where we're going in the future will hopefully be less trial and error and more, well, we can do this blood test or we can do this brain scan or something. And that will tell us which, which one is more likely to work for you. And it's something that's starting to happen in cancer. For example, we're starting to see more personalized treatments for individuals for their cancer rather than, you know, it's just, a breast cancer no we know it's this particular type and that is affected better by this drug so maybe in the future we'll have some way of doing that for mental health as well um problem is the brain is really complicated um mm. so we also have the problem that drugs affect the whole brain and actually it might only be a little part of it that we want to be affected but we take the drugs orally they go into our blood they go all throughout our bodies and to the whole of our brain. And that's one of the reasons we get side effects. So another idea is whether you could create drugs that target just the particular bit of the brain that needs them and isn't washed throughout the whole brain. And that might have fewer side effects as well. But again, the technology of how you do that is is very new oh, and absolutely. not quite not there yet and very complicated. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but it does sound like you're on the case, Jenny, and that's good to know.
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm not going to be doing the research, but I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really interesting area. And there are scientists and technology companies out there who are looking at developing them. Um, And I mean, there are already some kind of non-drug versions of it. So there's um, implants that are being tried, used for some very severe brain diseases that are like little pacemakers for the brain. So they provide tiny little electrical shocks. um, And they're used sometimes in Parkinson's and you can insert them right into the part of the brain that is damaged in people with Parkinson's disease. And, And they're having quite good success, but it's brain surgery. So you're only going to do that for really severe cases because of the risks. So can we find something that's targeted like that, but less invasive and less risky? I think that's the challenge. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. No, it it does sound like a a really interesting challenge as well. Mm. and One that seems to sort of um, inspire you doesn't it really to, to keep finding out about you know the neuroscience of our brain as you said it's it's such a
1: young subject really in the scheme and it's of changing me. all the time like there will be stuff that I wrote in the book 18 months ago that is now wrong that we have new information on but that's just how neuroscience works we're all I mean scientists there are so many wonderful researchers out there discovering new things every day um, and I'm just reading them and repeating them and hopefully translating them in a way that people can understand but it's the scientists doing the hard work yeah no
0: scientists are doing the hard work and you know that that's incredibly commendable because you know where would we be right now without any sort of science you know we certainly would still be living through this awful pandemic wouldn't we um and we're on our way out now which is great so thanks to the vaccines yay yay (laughs) So, um, anyway, do you know what, Ginny It's been lovely to meet you and thank you for coming on Tea Time. I've really enjoyed listening to, to all about your new book, Overloaded, which is out this week. To
1: meet you. Thanks so much for having me. Look
0: forward to chatting with my next guest on the Tea Time sofa this time next Saturday. In the meantime, if you would love to get in touch about having a chat with me, you can reach me on teatime at forthenow.co.uk. Or you can find me on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram on Teatime with A.M. Bye for now.